Good morning, this is Haim Goodenstrauss with The Math Factor. Today we bring you a very special interview with uh, John H. Conway discussing his long friendship with Martin Gardner, who died four weeks before at the age of 95. Martin Gardner, as regular listeners of the podcast know, was an amazing influence on thousands upon thousands of us, with a regular column in Scientific American for 30 years, almost. If I haven't gotten you to uh, buy one of his books yet, well, do so now. Uh, You can't go wrong, they're all terrific. Conway and Gardner corresponded for decades, and in fact, uh, for many years, Conway was one of the primary sources of material for Gardner's column. On the other side, it's remarkable that Conway himself actually first published many of his more popular, popularizable results uh, through Gardner's column instead of through regular journals. At the height of their mutual fame, they were really quite a pair. This special interview is a tribute to them both. Uh, it, it might seem a little long to to you if you're not a diehard Conway or Gardner fan, and if it does, well, you should get some of Gardner's books and become a diehard fan. Uh, they're really pretty amazing. I'm here with John Conway. We're sitting in a beautiful garden in Oaxaca, and I wanted to ask you, John, um, your thoughts on Martin Gardner, who our listeners will know uh, passed away last month, and you knew him for maybe 40 years, something like that? Uh, how long did I know? Uh, well, I wrote to him when I was a student in Cambridge, and I stopped being a student in Cambridge, in, I mean an undergraduate student, I stopped being a student in 1959, I think, so that makes it 50 years, slightly longer. Uh-huh. But then I knew him just by correspondence. Uh, what happened is, um, you know, I wrote a letter to him about what turned out to be his, his zeroth column. The hexaflexagons. Uh, the hexaflexagon column. And um, it wasn't actually a column, it was an article in the body of the magazine. And they asked him to write a permanent column because it got more mail than anything before it. And um, among the mail it got was a letter from me. And then um, he wrote back and then I had an old-fashioned typewriter in my college room and I put an eight-inch roll roll of paper, eight-inch roll of paper, I think, and uh, it was indefinitely long and I just wound it around every now and then. And when it got to about six feet long, I tore it off, <laughs> folded it up, and sent it off to him. Well, he got all kinds of crank mail, I'm sure. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, he seemed to like these things. He, he kept them anyway, but I uh. imagine he kept his crank mail as well. Um, and I've just been looking at some of the letters, actually, because oh, really? Roberts uh, oh, she's got uh, has got some of them, yes. That's uh, his your biographer. Yeah. Right. And... Um, so, uh, anyway, what happened is, you know, I was part of a group of nerdy students who were interested in funny mathematical problems, and in particular we read his column and we discussed things. So some of the letters were comments on his column, and some of the letters were the games or the mathematical problems that the Cambridge students were interested in this week. And um, so it all went down in a big mishmash. So that's how, that's really where your friendship began. This yeah, and then he, um, he wrote back regularly. He was a fantastic correspondent. I wasn't. 
um, he wrote back and then every now and then he used something in his column he, uh, and that had a peculiar effect because you know the Cambridge students my friends were talking about some particular topic in let's say January and then in October maybe he was lost for something to talk about for his column so he dug out this letter I wrote him in January and suddenly everybody was talking about what we'd been talking about however many months earlier. That went on for quite a long time and then when I got to be a bit older I started travelling across the Atlantic about once a year and I usually stayed at Martin Gardner's house. Right. Yeah, so um, tell us about, I believe it was the first time you visited him. Yes, the, the, you're talking about the restaurant yeah, story? Yeah, right. Uh, well, uh, yes, he took us this first time. Uh, first of all, he apologized. He left me alone in his den at the top of the house while he went to collect his sons from school. I think they were teenagers at the time. Um, and there's a funny thing. I op he said, you can play with anything you like. So I opened a little drawer that stood on top of a semicircular table, yes. Uh, by the way, we're being shot at regularly. <laughs> I don't know what that is. But, uh, Maybe they're scary <laughs> birds or something. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, we haven't been hit so far. I've been in our escape sometimes. But um, yes, I opened this drawer and a little mechanical insect jumped out. I sort of almost screamed. And it jumped onto the table. And uh, then it started walking around. And then it reached the edge of the table. And it rather gingerly felt with one, it was like a spider, with one right. of its eight legs, if it had eight legs. This is purely mechanical. Purely mechanical, little piece of wire and clockwork. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. And they decided it wasn't going to walk off the table, but turned left or something. A very clever thing. And it kept on doing that until its, it's cock ran out, so to speak. Um, but then uh, Martin came back, and uh, he, he organized a little party of let us say eight people, I don't know how many it actually was, could have been six, could have been ten. Um, and we went out to this little cheap restaurant in Dobbs Ferry. At that time he was living in Hastings-on-Hudson, New York, with the appropriate address of 10 Euclid Avenue. Right. And um, anyway, we went out to this place called Dobbs Ferry, which is a little bit further down the river, or up the river or something. And. Um, and it was a very cheap place, it had a plain deal table and there was an Irish waitress and she came and sort of dealt the plates onto the table and this made a clattering noise which sort of, first of all, sort of led to some informality anyway she wasn't being, you know, carefully stopping at each thing and laying down the plate and then she came and she dealt the cutlery onto the table in the same way. And Martin picked up his knife and fork and dropped them through the plate onto the table where they made a clattering noise. Um, and uh, I mean, I'm, I'm describing what conjurers call the effect. He seemed to drop them through the plate onto the table. I couldn't tell the difference. But you know, they started off uh, a foot above the plate, they landed up a foot below the plate on the, on the table. Anyway, this girl, the waitress, screamed. <laughs> uh, it was such a shock. 
Um, and uh, then Martin sort of uh, looked around with an innocent expression. Did anything unusual happen? <laughs> um, and then he picked up the cutlery again and dropped it through the place. And this time, of course, everybody was looking at this thing. And then he collected everybody's cutlery and sent it in a continuous stream through the plate until a big heap of knives and forks and spoons. So um, the plate was like being held above the table? Yeah, he held it with oh, his see. left hand Shooting and dropped the cutlery somehow <laughs> pretty quickly with the right hand. Uh, at least I don't remember now, you know. That, uh, this is anyway what, what seemed to happen, and obviously it didn't exactly. And I said, Martin, you know, you must tell me how to do that, or can you, you know, there might be rules magic circle in England I know has rules that uh, say you can't disclose things to people who aren't professional magicians or something. Um, uh, and he sort of said, later, later, you know. Um, and then we went out of this restaurant and uh, I said, when's later going to be, you know. Well, I, he said, I'll tell you later, but um, I, I will tell you one thing. It was pretty dark in that restaurant. And I was led to believe that if it had been fully lit, it would have been rather obvious. And then, do you know, I forgot to ask him later. And uh, during that visit, certainly, he didn't tell me. And uh, the next time I asked him was a few days later, and he'd forgotten. Oh, no. I, I described the trick, and he, uh, he couldn't remember how he'd done it. Oh, uh, no. Or else maybe he didn't want to remember, but I think he would have told me. You were telling me the other day about uh, him picking you up at the airport. Oh, yes. Well, I guess you were coming over from Britain. Yeah, that, uh, and that's one date I can actually identify. August 1972. Um, so, my God, that is already 38 years ago mm -hmm. or something. Um, yes, well, uh, I arrived at Kennedy Airport and... Um, Usually, you know, those were in the days before there was high security, so usually you stepped off the plane and there you saw some familiar faces straight away. But I didn't see Martin's face, so I went to a, a sort of place where he was pretty certain to come by, you know, I collected my baggage or whatever. And, um, and then he didn't turn up for ages and ages and ages. And I began to think, what do I do if he never turns up? You should understand that I'm a pretty incompetent person. <laughs> I have to be sort of led by the hand. Um, I think I knew the address of 10 Euclid Avenue, but I didn't have a telephone number for him. And even if I had a telephone number, I wasn't at all sure I could work the American telephone system. And I preferred not to try <laughs> somehow. Uh, you, you, uh, you know, I'm still pretty incompetent, but I've been incompetent all my life. It's not just senility, it's been, you know, I became senile at the age of 19, I think. But um, anyway, I started to think, what do I do if he never turns up? I thought, I'll wait two hours, and during those two hours, I'll try and think of what I'll do if he doesn't turn up. And I thought of various people I knew who lived in New York and so on. But anyway, he did turn up before the two hours were up, but not all that much before. And he burst into the sort of waiting room and said, um, oh, uh, uh, 
Yes, well, I'll tell you why I was late in a moment, and then when you hear why, you'll forgive me. And I said, you know, Martin, I forgave you as soon as I saw your face. In fact, there's no need to forgive you because I expect nothing, you know, demand nothing and so on. Just very relieved, I must say, that you're here. So, um, as we sort of got into his car, he told me that he'd been in the New York Public Library and let's say he was a keen Martin, not Martin, a Lewis Carroll fan, I was confusing Lewis Carroll with Martin Gardner, which is pretty easy to do <laughs> in some ways, and um, he had been in the New York Public Library and he discovered something written by Lewis Carroll that the Lewis Carroll fans didn't know about. And he knew they didn't know because he was one of the chief Lewis Carroll fans in the world. And um, so he stood in line for the copying machine. I should say this was before the days of Xerox machines. Right. The copying machine was pretty awful. Um, that purple thing, yeah. purple stuff. And then he, um, uh, he sort of waited 20 minutes and only got through a third yeah. of the queue or something. And he realized he was going to be late to meet me. But by this time, he'd invested 20 minutes <laughs> queuing time. So he waited a bit more, and then he realized he was going to be very late to meet me. But now it was only 20 minutes to the front of the queue, you know. So he decided to stay there anyway. Of course, in these days, with cell phones, he could have phoned to say he was late. But um, anyway, except that I probably wouldn't have had a cell phone. <laughs> but, uh, but you have one now. Yeah, I have one now, but only recently. Um, so uh, anyway, the article he'd found was an article by Lewis Carroll in the journal called Nature for some time between 1870 and, uh, 1870 and 1880 and it gave a simple rule for working out the day of the week. And Nature is now a very serious scientific journal but at that time it was a bit more like popular mechanics. It gave you know, instructions for making interesting things, mm -hmm. simple explanations of how scientific things worked, and so on. And uh, they're getting nearer these gunshots, <laughs> I don't know. Um, and um, and Martin said, you know, as we got got as he started driving, you should take a look at it. It's it's really quite interesting. It's a better rule than most. Now Martin at that time had. A filing cabinet full of three by five index cards about every sort of interesting subject under the sun and about 20 of these contained rules for working out the day of the week and he just and said this, this predates yours I mean I know you're this predates mine yes in fact it uh, it was the cause of mine right um, and he said it's a pretty good rule and when we got back you know, he, he thought it was better than any of the 20 or so he already had. And when we got back, we verified that it really was. Um, and then he said to me, well, you know, John, uh, you should work out a rule for working out today of the week, which is easy enough that I can teach it to my readers. And I took that as a challenge. And now I've got to explain something about staying with Martin Gardner and Charlotte Gardner, who was still alive at the time, uh, in 1972. 
uh, doubtless in other years too. Um, at about six o'clock in the evening, uh, they one of them would say to the other, I think it's your turn tonight, dear. And the other one would say, no, 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 I distinctly remember it was my turn yesterday. No, 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 it can't have been, because you remember the day before yesterday, well, etc., something like this. They argued about whose turn it was. I didn't inquire what it meant, <laughs> but um, eventually the loser, so to speak, would reluctantly admit that maybe it was, or at any rate, you know, he'd generously do it, he or she, uh, and uh, would toddle out into the kitchen and make two old fashions. Now, at that time, I didn't know what an old fashioned was, and in a way, I still don't. I'm not sure. It's whiskey? It's, well, it's some kind of cocktail, anyway. And um, when I stayed with them, they made three old fashions. And they brought them back into their little dining room or whatever, and um, we sat sipping them for the next half an hour. And then Charlotte would begin to yawn. This happened every time I went to stay with them, essentially. Um, Charlotte would um, begin to yawn uncontrollably and would say, somehow I don't seem to be able to keep awake tonight. Um, uh, I never knew a night when she was able to keep <laughs> awake. So this was perhaps half past six. And after a time she would uh, say, well, I I'm sorry, I must leave you two boys alone and go off to bed, you know. So she left us two boys alone. And then half an hour later, Martin would start the same thing. They'd both yawn. Um, and he would go off to bed. And the net effect was that by about seven o'clock, I was left to face the long winter evening all by myself and I call this a long winter evening to describe its bleakness and emptiness, <laughs> not the time of year it was. There were long e winter evenings in particular in August 1972. Um, they weren't so bleak because his guest room had in particular his shelf of interesting books and um, he, uh, he uh, said, uh, you know, point to any book and I'll tell you what's interesting about it and I pointed to a certain book oh he said that's a very interesting one uh, read it and see what you think you know and I started to read it I noticed that the language was a little bit stilted uh, and uh, but then he told me what the interesting thing was it was written entirely without the letter E in it this is a book which is better known now than it was then. It was called Gadsby, and it took that name from The Great Gadsby, a more famous book uh, by uh, Scott Fitzgerald. But um, I read it and I didn't notice anything, but tucked inside it was a newspaper article about the book and, and the author, from contemporaneous with the time of publication, I don't know when it was. And it showed a picture of the author's typewriter, which is an old-fashioned typewriter, rather like mine, uh, except that the little circular thing on the top of the E key had been taken off. Just to kind of enforce the, the rule. Yeah. Oh, but not only that, the metal that led into it had been sharpened <laughs> into a point. <laughs> so if the author great. ever hit the E key, he knew about it. <laughs> um, I think that's 
all about the first visit, isn't it? I mean, no, I did miss, meet a few interesting oh, people. Oh, so when he was late, you hadn't even met him before? That was actually when you met him? I hadn't. No, 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 that's not him? the first visit. I'm sorry, no, no, no. The first visit was the um, the restaurant in Dobbs Ferry in yeah. China. No, so that, this must have been the second or third visit. So one thing that's really remarkable about... Uh, oh, it was quite late. Okay, oh, yeah. So go. Well, your relationship with uh, Martin was, you know, you actually would publish interesting and significant results. For better or worse, I guess one of your most famous in the public's uh, realm result is the game of life. Yeah. And uh, why did you, so what was, what led you to put that? Well, well, in, first of all. Um, I mean, that appeared for the first time in Gardner's column. Yeah, I find it very hard to write, uh, to write mathematical articles, to write anything. This is from a man who wrote on numbers and games in one week, of course, so we can we have to take that with a grain of salt. Yes, well, yes, but it was one, I mean, it was years of preparation followed by right. a week of, etc., followed by two years, roughly, or 18 months of leaving the book to, uh, but anyway, to fester, <laughs> <laughs> or to lie fallow or something. Um, yeah, but I do find it very hard to write. And um, so at one time in my life, I made a sort of vow. Uh, well, no, this is rather later. I'll tell you about the vow in a minute. But um, things, uh, you know, on the other hand, uh, so, well, I'll, I might as well say it. I mean, you know, I, I'm a serious mathematician. I uh, do significant mathematical work, or at least I have done. I was a serious mathematician. And um, and I sort of felt that recreational stuff got in the way of that. If mm -hmm. I spent some time, you know, I would find it just as hard to write recreational mathematics as any other kind of mathematics. And the time was better spent writing serious mathematics. Um, and so, in general, uh, I didn't believe in writing recreational mathematical mm -hmm. articles. Um, and Gardner, you know, just took anything I told him, wrote it up better than I could, uh -huh. certainly quicker than I could, and, uh, you know, it had a, a wide circulation. So, for quite a few years, he based his articles, uh, not all of his articles, but uh, occasional articles um, in his games column on something I had sent him. Um, well, that one had a tremendous response. The, you're talking about life. The yeah. Game of Life article, wasn't that... Yeah. Well, I told you that the, um, the first article he wrote, which wasn't in his games column because it didn't exist at the time, it was an article like any other article yeah. in the body of Scientific American. It got more, it got more reader response than anything before it by quite a large factor. And it was very funny, I mean, uh, you should read the letters he got, which are published in some places, some of them, of course. And um, so then it was that the editors asked him to try and write a permanent column. And he didn't feel expert enough. He wasn't a mathematician. Um, but he was a wonderful correspondent, and he built up a sort of library of people who were interested in mathematical games. And his general technique was to get a letter from somebody about something that seemed interesting, then to write, write it up as his column, send it to the real author, I mean the 
what should we call it, the pre-author uh -huh. for comments and then publish it and so on. Um, and he did that with quite a lot of the letters I sent him. So I don't know how many articles were based on stuff I did. But then came the life game. And um, this was a recreation we had for 18 months to two years in the common room of the mathematics department in Cambridge. We would play around with it. I won't try to describe what it does. The game of life. Yeah, the game of life. Did you do it with ghost stones? Or? Yeah, we played with ghost stones. We had a whole set of interesting rituals, which were rather funny, for updating the position. Um, and we had a terminology. There was a standard sort of mistake that Nigel Martin used to make, and they were called Nigel Martin mistakes and so on, um, which was not very kind to Nigel <laughs> Martin. Um, but um, we played with this, and after a time, it, it, it suddenly crystallized in a sense when um, my friend Richard Guy said he was responsible for watching small bits of the configuration said come over here my bits walking mm -hmm. and his bit was what we later called the glider I should have called it the ant because on the computer screen it looks like an ant but I called it the yeah, glider because right. it moved by glide reflection yeah. Um, and it was then that we knew that this system was a good candidate for what I wanted to find, which was a, a universal cellular automaton. Meaning that it could any kind of computation this thing could carry out. Yeah, it could. It, you could program it, the game of life itself. Yeah, you could also program any precisely defined mathematical question. Right. Uh, it, as does this particular life configuration fade away completely or doesn't it? Right. That was interesting. But anyway, um, that was what I was uh, studying the game for. And it, before it became the particular set of rules for eventually found, they were found by this 18 months or two years period of experimentation. And I wrote this off to Martin and he put it in his column. It was about 1972, I think. Um, Sounds about right. Anyway, and it aroused more interest than uh, any previous thing in the Scientific American, right. including Martin Gardner's first column. In fact, in the end, he wrote three or four articles about it. And unfortunately, that means it's the best. It's the thing I'm best known for. <laughs> That's pretty good. But well, of course, in mathematical circles, there's lots of other sort of more yeah. serious things. Well, you know, I'm. Um, how can I say it? Uh, I'm not unduly modest, so to speak. <laughs> I haven't known you to be. And um, so, when a, a popular mathematics book appears, uh -huh. I turn to see a certain name in the index. Uh -huh. And um, and then it says, you know, page 152 and page 167 or something. And then I turn to see what it says about me on page 152. It's always the game of life, damn it. And I would wish it were something else. What would, actually, what would your candidate be? Well, I don't honestly know. I, no, I do in a way. It's a popular mathematical book I'm speaking of. So it's probably the, the surreal numbers oh, I'd yeah. like to see there. Yeah. Um, 
The surreal numbers are an enormous class of number that includes uh, the real numbers and the ordinal numbers, the yeah. infinite ordinal numbers. We actually did a piece on it. We, I'll, oh, yeah. I'll uh, put and, a little link in the yeah, and then, web page um, about it. It also had infinitesimal numbers and so on. Now, and um, I'm tremendously did. proud of it. And actually, one reason I'm proud of it is because, uh, how can I say? Well, in England, we have this phrase, take the mickey out of something. Uh, I'm not really quite sure what the origin is, but um, it means sort of reduce somebody's pomposity by making fun of them. <laughs> and um, this, uh, uh, this collection of numbers uh, uh, all arose from studying a rather trivial kind of game. And yet, in the end, it provided a new foundation for the theory of real numbers and a simpler foundation than before. And it didn't only do the real numbers, it did the infinite ordinal numbers and, uh, and everything else, you know, massive thing. On Numbers and Games was the book that that was really all summarized. Yes, I wrote this uh, book on Numbers and Games. And that was rather strange too, because this is the book that I mentioned a bit ago, was written in a week. Right. Well, uh, there's some truth to that. It's a story I often tell, but like the stories I often tell, it's not entirely true. But it's it the more gets better, better each time. Yeah, it gets better each time. But um, what happened was this: I was supposed to be writing a book on games with Elwyn Burlicamp and Richard Guy, and we did eventually finish this book on games. It's That's called Winning Ways. But then I suddenly discovered the surreal numbers, which is a part of game theory. And um, I realized this couldn't be really developed in our joint book on games, Winning Ways, as it later became. And, um, but then I also realized that the term was coming soon. And at that time, when term started, I wouldn't be able to do anything else. Um, and it was, you know, one or two weeks away from the start of term. And I thought, I've got to get this stuff off my chest now. So I, uh, I decided I, to get up at 8 a.m. every morning, start typing, and continue typing till midnight, taking an hour off for lunch, and maybe an hour total for other resting periods. Um, but um, so I typed. It's amazing stamina. But I typed typed roughly for fourteen hours every day for a week. Um, but you know, I thought about, and that that's the book. The book I was typing was the book that became on numbers and games. Yeah. But the story, like all my stories, isn't quite true. <laughs> um, you I don't see, think I've heard this confession before about this. Uh, well, you know. Anyway, you know, I had written a paper on one particular game, mm -hmm. game, which just became a chapter in the book later, mm -hmm. um, and uh, that was Hackenbush, Welter, and Prune. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think I'd written one or two other little things, mm -hmm. did not amounting to as much as a chapter before and then um, after after that week was finished I put the book aside 
for another of these periods of 18 months to two years, um, it wasn't completely finished. It had things like insert table here, or cross-reference to chapter what, you know, um, or um, uh, find a figure to illustrate this. Um, and they were done. Actually, my friend Richard Guy drew most of the figures in there. Oh, really? Um, he helped a lot, but he, he insisted that his name not be added as a co-author. He wasn't really a co-author. I mean, he was an illustrator. Right. Um, uh, you know, sorry, go on. Oh, go we're supposed to be talking about Martin Gardner. Yes. Uh, Martin Gardner did an article about the surreal Did he? I haven't seen it. Yeah. Um, okay, well, I started talking about myself. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> I'm leaving but you there. asked me. I did ask you. You asked me I, what actually, thing... I misled um, you down that road. Maybe the fact Good. that I didn't really tell, talk about this too much to Martin Gardner uh, uh, is why, you know... Well, that's what, um So did you, um, I guess you enjoyed sharing magic tricks with, with each other? Yes, uh, he told me a number of um, magic tricks every now and then. He taught me this way of tying a piece of string into a knot without leaving go of the ends. Actually, that was well drawn in one of his columns. Uh -huh. um, and then a lot later, uh, you know, I, I practiced that regularly and did it at parties and so on. And um, a lot later, I saw him. I gave a lecture somewhere in South Carolina at a time when he was living in Hendersonville, North mm -hmm. Carolina. And he drove over to hear my lecture, which was a great compliment. Well, I don't think he drove. Somebody drove him. Uh, which was a great compliment because he seldom moves out of where he's living. Sorry, I speak of him as though he's still living, but that seems to be the easiest way. Um, and um, so we were discussing various tricks, and uh, he said, oh, there's a new way of tying a piece of string into a knot. And he sort of took the string we were playing with and sort of clapped his fists together, <laughs> and there was a knot. It was so astonishingly quick, you know. And um, I, once again, I said, Martin, you must tell me how to do that. And he did. And, um, and I could do it. I did this about ten times during this conversation. And then, damn me, I forgot to practice. And with these sort of manual dexterity tricks, the memory is in the hands. And, um, and the next time I sort of remembered, about a week later, I just couldn't get it right, you know. Um, so that's annoying. I mean, it must have been, he said it's the sort of talk of the, you know, the magic world. So it oh, must really? be available in, in magic journals for the appropriate time, but I don't know. What so what was his, I guess, what was his relationship with the magic world? Do you know much about it? Uh, well, yes. I mean, uh, he told me that he wrote his first article for a, a magic periodical when he was 16 really and he regularly contributed to these things with easy little tricks and so on um, and uh, then he wrote two big books on magic um, 
I, I've forgotten There's, the exact titles. Well, it's the one on mathematics and math. No, I, I mean, well, I remember sort of one of them is a compendium of close-up magic tricks. Uh-huh. Oh God, one's pink and one's purple. <laughs> <laughs> That's about all I remember of them. I think of them as the pink uh-huh. book and the purple book. And maybe there are more books that I don't know about. Um, but uh, and you know the professional magicians. I, w- I was most professional mathematicians of a certain age range became mathematicians or were highly influenced in that direction by Martin Gardner's yeah. columns in Scientific American. I raised my hand. Yeah. yeah. And what I discovered when I started going to these um, uh, gatherings for Gardner, which are organized every two years, is that the same is true of most professional magicians. Really? Uh, they're raised on Martin Gardner too. And um, so I became very friendly with a number of professional magicians uh, yeah, later. That's know. always fun. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, yeah, I guess he only went to one or two of those himself. He was a really a, he amazing. He was a shy he, guy. He's such an amazing correspondent and so yeah. many friends. And he's very shy. But, I'm sorry, I'm going to speak of him in the present. <laughs> I think it's fair enough. Yeah. Uh, he's present in my mind all right. the time, as right. he's speaking, so that's fine. Uh, he's a very shy guy. And uh, let me tell you a story. We were going to go to, one, one time I visited him, we had arranged to go to a conference on recreational mathematics in Miami University, Oxford, Ohio. And um, we were talking about what we were going to do and so on. I, I stayed at his house for a week or two weeks or something, I don't know. Um, and we were talking about what we were going to do, and then on the morning we were going to fly there, he said, you know, John, I'm not going. Okay. Oh, wow. And it was basically because he would be lionized at this conference, and he was too shy. Right. Uh, he was a very shy person. Um, See, being lionized, you've never had any trouble with that. No, I <laughs> you rather enjoy it. Uh, well, I've just been lionized, you know, yesterday, <laughs> I mean, basically, after I gave my talk here, in, not here, in Mexico in, in City. Mexico City. Yeah. Uh, all sorts of people came up eager to shake my hand. Right. And be but he hated that, I guess. Yes, he, yeah. uh, I mean, he didn't like it anyway. Um, but um, I could have managed. But anyway, I had to fly off to this uh, conference by myself. And by the way, it was interesting. At that time, uh, Oxford, Ohio, was not near a major a- airport. I don't know oh. what it is now. Mm-hmm. And uh, but it had its own little airport. And I was told to go to, you know, maybe the Delta Airlines <laughs> ticket desk, some kind of airline ticket desk. Um, and when I got there, a, a man. Sh- saluted me he was the pilot oh wow um, and uh, he escorted me my wife was with me at the time too uh, and also one of her friends and our young baby oh, wow. quite sure what she was. the friend was there to look after the baby basically so she was introduced as the nurse she was actually a nurse but she wasn't our nurse you know she was her profession was a nurse. She just happened to be a friend of my wife's. 
And so this pilot saluted smartly and led us to our plane. And we got in the plane, which was something like an eight-seater plane, not very much. And we could, um, we could see out of the windows on either side, and also we could see through the pilot's window. Oh, that's neat. Um, and, uh, you know, it hopped up, it was quite a short flight, it came down, and then uh, the pilot asked us to help push the plane into the handle. <laughs> <laughs> we just closed like a, you know it was a rather large garage um, and that was that um, and it was a nice little conference on uh, you know recreational mathematics and a little bit of magic I think Martin might have enjoyed it but his shyness interfered with a lot of things uh, you know really yeah well That's at so one of the gatherings for Gardner um, uh, they, we, it was suggested that I telephone him. Oh yeah. And then they play whatever his uh, remarks were to the audience in general and yeah. so on. And in the end, we decided not to. You just didn't want to do it. Well, I, you know, I, Martin might have been okay with it, but he might not. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to just sort of deceive him oh, by pretending not. to be alone. Of course not. Anyway, um, that was that. But, you know, at this first gathering for Gardner, Martin and his wife Charlotte attended. I think it's the only one they did. It wasn't Bard. I guess they were in Hendersonville at the time. Yeah, but, um, anyway. How did Tom get involved? I mean, well, oh, Tom did it. He started it. Yeah, Tom, Tom was Rogers. interested. How did he... Uh, well, he has this wonderful collection of puzzles. And uh, anybody with a collection of puzzles is interested yeah. in Martin Gardner, you know. So he just uh, decided to, to, to have do this, this thing. Yeah, that's really remarkable because yeah. he puts so much energy and money. He invests so much of himself and gives so much to that community. <laughs> They're really wonderful occasions. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, there is usually a magic show or several magic several shows. Several magic shows. At one of these things, and I remember uh, two particular. Uh, magic shows at the first one. One was a close-up magic show, but it was being displayed for an audience of a few hundred people. And what happened is uh, the magician sat at a table which was facing the audience, and then four other magicians knelt so that their heads were just a little bit above the table top, mm. and they were closely examining <laughs> what, what, he was doing? what he was doing and seeing yeah. if they could tell how he did the no, trick. Who was the magician? And then there was the umpire or chairman yeah. who, after the trick was performed, would sort of say, okay, Charlie, you know, what do you think about how uh -huh. uh, he did oh, so that? So is it like a road the, the performer was rotating? No, no, no. I'm thinking of, you know, one, one performer. Uh -huh. I'm not sure what happened exactly. Uh -huh. But certainly, you know, at a given time anyway, one performer performed. And these four people scrutinized. Right. And, um, and then, uh, you know, the person who was asked would say, well, I thought I saw, uh, you know, a cardigan uh, whiffle. <laughs> the, you know, sorry, I'm inventing this technical term for right. some piece of magical trickery. Um, and, um, and then the other 
another person would say no, it was uh, a raglan mm -hmm. uh, shuffle there, I, I believe, and so on. And then uh, finally the umpire would turn to the performer and say, well, what do you think of those comments? And he would just say, well, Harry was closest. <laughs> I mean, he didn't have to say anything mm -hmm. if he didn't want to. He didn't have to reveal a thing. But he yeah. would normally give a little bit away. Well, let me tell you, the first time I met Leonard Green was at one of these gardener gatherings, so yeah. it's legitimate to talk about it, I think. All the professional magicians who came in, as they came in, said, um, has Leonard Green arrived yet? And uh, I want to see his trick called Thin Deck. And Leonard Green hadn't arrived. You know. um, and then we were in a large hotel in Atlanta, I forget which hotel it was. And then he arrived. Well, I'd never seen Leonard Green before, but I knew immediately this must be Leonard Green. He carried two large cases and they wouldn't let him register. He had to sit down at a circular table around which were seated, I think, more than a dozen people, especially then the, behind them there were a few standers. And, um, and he had to perform this trick called Tin Duck. And it was hilarious. And um, so uh, I'll only say, you know, he did various other things that weren't part of the trick but sounded as though they might be. You, ne you never know when the trick starts if right. you've got a good magician, you know. Um, but then he really started doing the trick. He, he just innocently was dealing cards face downwards off the top of the deck in his hand onto the table. And he just started dealing. And, uh, you know, he has no expression on his face except a faintly quizzical one, you mm -hmm. know. He didn't explain what he was doing. It took quite some time for us to notice that he must have got about halfway through the deck and yet there were only three, three or four <laughs> cards right. on the table. Uh -huh. uh, as he dealt the cards onto the table, they seemed to disappear, mm -hmm. uh, except a few. Um, and then he after we all noticed that, <laughs> it took some time, he turned the deck over and said, it's more interesting perhaps if I deal it from a face upwards deck, you know. And then he did that, and then he said, to make it interesting, I'll deal the red cards onto the left-hand heap and the, right, and the black cards onto a black one. And he started doing that. And then he said, oh, oh, oh there's a mistake. And he, start, he had started dealing a black card, let's say the three of clubs, onto the red pile. Oh, but it made no difference. The three of clubs turned into the seven of hearts <laughs> as soon as it hit the table. <laughs> This was absolutely fantastic. And plus his whole demeanor is of this bumble fingers. Yes, you know. he's, uh, he looks like a clumsy idiot. His know. hands are big. Yes, and <laughs> you can see him peeking at the cards. <laughs> you know. One of his tricks is to take a deck that's um, shuffled, you know, and shuffle it again. And he just does this rather clumsy overhand shuffle you can see him peeking at the cards every now and then, but he, he does it for, you know, 20 to 30 seconds. And then he spreads the cards out on the table in front of you, and they're in perfect it's order. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Um, and I turned to uh, 
one of these two, Penn and Teller, I, I'm afraid mm. I can't remember which one has this professional silence act. That's Teller. Teller, yes. He doesn't tell anything. Anyway, um, I turned to him and said, do you have any idea? Well, I don't know which trick it was. It was a trick that uh, Leonard Green was performing in the lobby of the hotel we were staying at. And everybody was standing around watching, including lots of professional magicians. And I turned to Teller and said, do you have any idea? Um, you know what's going on here? And he sort of indicated no with a shrug and so on. He, he keeps in character all the time. Oh, does he? Yeah. Oh. So, well, at least in, in public situations, right. you know. So he never actually utters a word. So, of course, um, Gardner was incredibly well known for his puzzles. Do you have any favorite puzzles that come to mind? No, not really. Well, at least. I'm trying to think. Well, that, that came after the blue formula, and I hadn't really thought Can't about it. Right. No, I don't know. I mean, you know, every now and then, God. Uh, oh well, well, let me tell you a few things. Yes, he he uh, earned me quite a bit of money when I was a student. Um, he had this problem about a bicycle. Oh yeah. Um, so you have a bicycle, and your friends, if you have any. Um, promise to just hold it up in such a way that it won't fall from side to side but they don't interfere with its motion forwards or backwards and then you start with one pedal at the top of its range and the opposite pedal of course at the bottom of its range and you kneel down you, sh you should adopt a suitably obsequious position for this and push the lower pedal towards the rear of the bike and then the problem is what happens. Which way does the bike? Yes, well, or, or what happens? <laughs> um, the bike might move forwards, it might move backwards, it might perhaps, for some strange reason, jump up in the air or, or stay absolutely still or something. But um, anyway, one of these things happens and the others don't. And the problem is what happens. And. I don't want to reveal yes, what happens. You can use it for your friends or something. You can practice it in private and then gain money the way I used to. Um, what I used to do uh, in a group of about seven people was introduce them to this story uh, or to this problem. Uh, and um, then everybody. Uh, put down a coin, you know, the appropriate coin of the time, which say in America nowadays would be a quarter. We don't want to make it too expensive. Um, so there's a heap of quarters on the table, or several heaps, you know, there's a heap for the people who say it moves forwards, and a heap for the people who say it moves backwards, and a heap for any other <laughs> eccentric thing. Um, and then uh, we all go down, well no, first, um, I say which one it was, and collect all the other heaps and put them in my pockets. Uh, that's important to do because otherwise people <laughs> might snatch them back, you know. And then, then we all go down, having checked. We only do this if we check that somebody... So what, if they'd been right, they wouldn't get anything. So basically they're betting. Yes, they just get them their, their, their get own money. quarterback. That's yes. in itself a good trick. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yes, 
Um, and, but they're so confident, really. But I mean, um, yes, I never, never really noticed that. <laughs> You know, you, you don't need a bike if you only think of something else to say, you know. You put your money down, and if you're right, you get it back. Um, anyway, um, I used to, uh, you know, most people guess wrong uh-huh. with this one. By quite a large factor. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, anyway, that's one of the problems from Martin Gardner. Now, at one time, I, I got a little model bike, uh, which was, you know, so good a model. It was only about eight inches long, but it had a chain mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, a sprocket wheel and everything. It was like an ordinary bike. And I could just about fit it in my pocket, and sometimes I produced it at parties. <laughs> and then we didn't even have to go outside to tell. Mm-hmm. Except that some people didn't believe what they saw. Mm-hmm. Um, and on this little model bike, you know, if you push really hard enough, you think something happens. So let me make sure I've got it straight. You push the, the bottom pedal, the, lower, the, pedal, the yeah. lower pedal, towards the rear of the, towards the, rear of the bike. And then what happens? It's sort of totally unexpected. You know, uh, I was asked once to write uh, an introduction to one of Martin's uh, books. I forget which one it was. I think it's Mathematical Carnival, but anyway, um, may not be. And um, it's a collection of his columns. And every now and then he does a column describing some, you know, giving 10 questions and their answers, and they mm-hmm. have to do with physics or mathematics or something. And um, I didn't realize until I started visiting Martin that the, many of the objects described in these columns were there mm. in his sitting room. Mm. So, you know, he has, for instance, some talk about an egg timer mm-hmm. inside a glass cylinder filled with water. Mm-hmm. And um, and what happens is, well, I, I mean, it's it, no use my phrasing this as a problem. I'll give you the solution. This egg timer is the good old-fashioned kind. And when it starts at the bottom, uh, the sand is at the top of the egg timer. But then uh, as the sand runs down, uh, when it's just about finished, the egg timer rises inside the glass cylinder the problem is why that is really strange and um, and then there are variations on this and so on well and many other problems Um, and um, so for instance one problem concerned another similar glass similar uh, glass cylinder problem Um, a, uh, a thermometer in which various discs bearing temperature numbers rose to appropriate things. Um, and uh, he asked questions about these in his columns. And I didn't realize the questions were about real physical objects that he actually owned, you know, the people yeah. had sent him, until I went to see him. And there was this uh, house which was like a museum filled with all the interesting objects in the world, you know, very, very nice. Uh, I never visited him in Hendersonville, 
Um, and then uh, he moved from there to this assisted living facility near Norman, Oklahoma, where he just died a few weeks ago. Yeah. Well, I think the, um, the battery is about to die on this. So uh, oh, let me say that um, there's a new edition of one of uh, his collections of columns came out, and Peter Rentz, who works for the publisher, telephoned me and asked me for a blurb. And they were hoping to get it out in time for his 95th birthday, mm. which was October the 21st last year. Well, uh, I don't know whether they did. Uh, I didn't hear about it, but at least Martin reached his 95th birthday. Right. That uh, was something to be happy about. Well, I think we'll turn off the mic and I'll let you return to your warm beer. We'll raise a toast to Gardner. Martin and Gardner. Remarkable man. Thank you, John. Thank you.